I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this spooky season edition of Parallax Views, we're going to be speaking with returning guest Chris Alexander of Full Moon Presents Delirium Magazine about his latest projects, including his Tombs of the Blind Dead homage, Scream of the Blind Dead, and his books Art Trash Terror, Adventures in Strange Cinema, and the main course for this conversation, Corman slash Poe, which is Chris's examination and exploration of the legendary Roger Corman directed Edgar Allan Poe adaptations for American International Pictures in the early 1960s. Very interesting films. They have lavish sort of sets and Vincent Price hamming it up, and a lot of unusual Freudian imagery. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We talk about those films. Uh, We also get into uh, some newer horror. Chris gives his thoughts on Saw X and the demonic possession hit Talk To Me, which already has a sequel in the works. That was kind of a sleeper this year. Anyways, we talk about all of that and much, much more. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Chris Alexander. Welcome back to Parallax News, a guest that we always have on around the spooky season. So it's the perfect time to have him on. Chris Alexander of Full Moon Presents Delirium Magazine, which I'm holding up a copy now for the video version of this conversation, and also the author of Corman Slash Poe, 
and the upcoming Art Trash Terror. And I believe he has a, a few movies he's uh, had come out since we last spoke to him. We'll get into all of that. How are you doing, Chris? I'm pretty good. Um, uh, warning in advance. I'm just getting over the mother of all viruses, not the dreaded COVID. I've had that eight fucking times, if you can believe that. I have kids, you know, they're like germ sponges. They come home like that. Ah! So whatever, they brought home something. I'm literally out of it now, but there may be the odd sputter or the odd cough or something um, to throw me off track and derail my train of thought and conversation. So apologies in advance. There's still the aftershocks of whatever bullshit these brats brought home. <laughs> so, Chris, uh, I know we're going to talk about Corman slash Pope, but uh, what movies have you been working on lately? You did a Blind Dead movie, right? Oh, you froze. Oh, I was saying... Uh uh <laughs> What movies have you been working on lately? I know you did a Blind Dead movie. You have a few that came out since we last spoke. Yeah, well, I'm through Full Moon. Um, you know, been pretty lucky with with Charlie, Charlie Band, uh, to have a bit of freedom. So I have my own little imprint at Full Moon called Delirium Films. And uh, it, you know, Charlie just gives me a little bit of money and says, go off, do whatever you want. And and I do. So I, I can make the kinds of movies that I make, which are very, if you know any of my pictures, are very kind of singular and very specific to how I want them to be. And, you know, I've heard some people call them outsider art, which I'm happy with. I've heard some people call them pieces of shit, which I'm happy with too, whatever you want. But either way, they're mine. And uh, so Charlie's let me let me do that. So I think I've made three to date. So since the last time we spoke, yes, I made um, my version of, uh, the Blind Dead, uh, Amando de Osorio's Spanish horror series, Blind Dead series. Um, specifically, it's called Scream of the Blind Dead. Specifically, it's when I was little, when I was 12, I remember reading in Gore Zone magazine, Tim Lucas's video watchdog column about this movie, Tombs of the Blind Dead, which I had never uh, even heard of. Obviously, I'm 12 years old and I live in Toronto. We, we, we don't get any of this information up here. Um, so I'd heard about this and, and it was about the evisceration of the film on via Paragon video. They'd released a kind of a butchered version of it, whatever. So I go into my mom and pop and there on the shelf is tombs of the blind dead. I'm like, Oh my God, I rent it. And it just was like, changed my, uh, so many of these movies at this period of my life changed my life. And this was one of them and a uh, huge deal for me. And so scream of the blind dead is specifically not a remake, not a sequel, it is an impression filtered through my kind of style of watching that Paragon release, a VHS release of Tombs of the Blind Dead when I'm 12 years old, and the, specifically the first half hour of that film. So I wanted it to kind of look like that, the way I remember that particular cassette tape looking, which I, I actually still have my copy of, but I ended up a couple of years later when that store was closing down, I, I bought that exact big box VHS copy, which I have kept. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's it's a kind of dreamy, bizarre, quote unquote, Chris Alexander movie, but with um, with a bit of the DNA of, of the evil blind night uh, zombie creature things in it. What was it about Tombs of the Blind Dead that uh, sort of imprinted on your brain? <laughs> I think it was just, you know, I wasn't that, that familiar with European horror films at that time, which especially of that period, they have a different beat. They're more... They're earthier. They're more um, something uncanny about them. They're they're 
somewhat familiar in that, in that they were always trying to somewhat mimic American, you know, domestic horror films, which I was familiar with. But they didn't have the budgets. They didn't have the, and also they were making exploitation films, so they were kind of distilling them down to their essences. Uh, and so, but there was always kind of either by intent or accident some kind of bizarre art that kind of bled out through the surface that was unique to the, to whatever culture if it was Italian or it was German or if it was Spanish. Um, so there was just something otherworldly about them. They felt like they were, and they were always dubbed. You know, this was before anyone really cared about these films on home video. They weren't released in their native tongue. And my God, no 12-year-old wants to read subtitles. They want to see blind, dead creatures uh, suck blood from girls' tits. I mean, that's what we wanted. So it was that it was that sexual element, too, which was interesting to me when I was 12. Uh, and yes, yeah, <clears throat> the more Baroque bloodletting and also the music. So all that combined in this weird, hyper-heightened reality, um, hyper-gothic sensibility that was alive and well in that film, really just kind of kind of hit me. And and the Amer like it was the English the Paragon video is an anomaly if you know this series because it's the English dub of the movie, um, but it's not that censored, horrible, blind, dead American English dub. It's uncut, which is weird. Except it's missing the end on the train ride for whatever reason. It's which that showed up on Elvira's show uncut. Anyways, that's a whole nother story. Really? I didn't particular... know that. <laughs> yeah, it was weird because Elvira would show a couple of years later, uh, I got the syndicated movie Macabre up here and I was like, oh, Tim's the Blind Dead. I want to see if there's what they've she's cut out of it or what they've cut out. And they cut out all the lesbianism, obviously, uh, some of the more graphic gore. But the whole train ride thing at the end with the Blind Dead are slaughtering everybody on the train was in there. And on the Paragon tape, for whatever reason they had cut that entire sequence out so i'd never seen that i'm like wow so that version of it was um it, it opens up with the the flashback that's in the middle of the film with the the non the not dead the living templar knights circling their female victim and hacking her up and hacking while she's screaming tied to that cross and then they stop while that um uh, uh, anton garcia uh, chanting starts going on and then they get down there and they start licking at their wounds of, of her breasts and it was just fucking outrageous to me. I was like, oh, my God, what is going on here? Should I be watching this? It felt dangerous. Um, so that's what I kind of wanted my movie to feel like, sort of um, my typical woman, a dark, uh, fractured, psyche woman movie done in a kind of dream state way, but exactly how I remember being in a frame of mind watching Tombs of the Blind Dead when I was 12 years old. I was going to say, I mean, we've talked about this before, but there's something really special about the Euro horror of the 70s, you know, whether we're talking about Paul Nashi or my personal favorite is always uh, Jean Roland. You know, I remember the first time I saw Fascination, it kind of like blew my mind. What do you think yeah. it is about the Euro horror? Well, I mean, a lot of these guys like, um, like Jean Roland, like just Franco. I mean, these guys were, I mean, Franco studied with Orson Welles, you know, I mean, he was he was no slouch. I mean, these guys really loved cinema and they, they, uh, they were, you know, with Roland, especially he was, he was a poet, you know, <clears throat> no different than Jean Cocteau, but they didn't have the opportunities or the cachet that these uh, bigger art house, more celebrated uh, filmmakers had. They had to live. They had to feed their families. So they were kind of forced, uh, forced. But I mean, that was their lot in life. They were making films that were lower budget on the fringes and they had to deliver exploitable elements um, and sometimes even delve into hardcore pornography, whatever it took to get the money flowing and to keep them active. You know, I would say the European guys, uh, this ilk, you know, they they live to work and they work to live. But I mean, this is cinema was their life. 
So you always see this kind of something more. There's a, an auteurism, definitely. And if you watch, you can't just watch one Roland film. You can't just watch one Franco film. Uh, you have to kind of watch uh, many of them together so you can start to pick up on the the themes, the the obsessions, the sensibilities, the reoccurring motifs that tra that go from picture to picture. And what's great about it is it's the trade-off. And I know this trade-off well, because it's kind of where, you know, I always say to my kids, I'm like, you know, I wish my heroes weren't just Franco and Jean Roland. I wish they were Steven Spielberg, because I'd probably be in, in Hollywood right now making these gigantic movies. Instead, I wanted to make movies. I wanted fuck off, leave me alone, creative freedom to do what I want and make the movies I wanted to make without anyone looking down my, my, uh, over my shoulder. That's the trade-off, unfortunately, but that's what these guys had too. They had a lot more creative freedom. Uh, so as long as they delivered the exploitable elements they needed to deliver, they could insert their, their very own unique perspective on cinema in the back end of these pictures. So when we watch the real life films, there's an aching, a melancholy, there's uh, always reoccurring motifs about memory and, and um, you know, there's something that's really profound in those pictures that you don't see in standard quote unquote commercial horror films, you know, by and large, you don't, uh, that's product. And when you're making product, obviously the stakes are higher. So you have to kind of make sure that it fits a certain mold so that you, everyone can get their return of investment. The bigger they uh, risk, the more they want a safer bet coming back. But the European stuff felt a little bit more Wild West and a little more loosey-goosey. And you, you just sometimes you just don't know what you're going to get. And they were riskier. You know, they they kind of operated on the edge. So they um, they took a lot more chances. So there was more interesting to me. Even today, even though I've seen a lot of these movies where, you know, when I'm chilling out, I don't necessarily want to pop up a Franco movie anymore because, you know, they require I have to be in a certain mindset to absorb that shit. But, um, you know, I still get a super, super thrill that I don't get anywhere else when I actually make the time to watch a, a European a horror film. You know, it's interesting. I know these movies get labeled as like exploitation, right? And I, I mean, they are. They are exploitation movies. But, you know, it's interesting with someone like Franco. I think uh, people get the impression, oh, this dude's just like filming movies with, uh, you know, Lena Romay where he can show off her body and whatnot, but uh, which he loved to do in those movies. But it's interesting. There's a weird art house element too. Like even in Franco, I think there is this like sympathy he has with the, especially the female characters. And I, I think there's artistic aspects and even a humanity in these movies that sometimes people overlook because they think, oh, just an exploitation movie. I 100% agree. And the reason why, you know, now as an adult, <clears throat> why I love these movies so much is not because of the nudity. It's not because of the blood. That's not why I watch them at all. Um, you know, Franco was a voyeur. Uh, he is, you know, one quote he laid on me. I knew him a little bit before he died. I was supposed to do the soundtrack for one of his final weirdo movies. And that was a real bummer, but it didn't work out. He didn't live. Um, but he he said, you know, I'm a voyeur. I, I get just as much of a thrill as staring at a woman's genitals as I do looking out into the sea and seeing a boat on the horizon, you know. And it's those moments. Like if you watch Vampiro's Lesbos, you know, which all takes place in the daytime, sunbaked, and it's like the antithesis of a gothic horror film. Um, you know, he's having great fun in his nightclub sequences watching Soledad Miranda do her thing. But then the camera will just go out the window 
and just stare out at a fucking boat for no reason at all, except that he saw that boat. Remember, Franco was a jazz man, right? So his movies kind of work like that. Like whatever thing is in the room that's going to give him like his thrill, he'll focus his attention on, right? Um, yeah, so they're, they're, that, that's not, I don't watch those movies. You know, the, the nudity and the violence, I mean, that's fun. That's fun, uh, you know, my Freudian id gets tickled. But the real poetry is in the other weird shit that he finds uh, on the peripheral. And again, I mentioned the sense of melancholy, the sense of longing, and the deeply, deeply personal nature of a lot of these, these, these pictures. I mean, you mentioned Lino Romay, who was his, you know, muse and life partner since '73, right up until she she died. Um, you know, she was gung ho to do whatever he wanted to do. Because she was like him, and they were perfectly matched in that he loved to make movies. She loved to make movies. Together, they were kind of bizarro skid row power couple that uh, just gave some completely freely of themselves to make whatever kind of art came down the path that would keep their operation going. And their operation, you know, consisted of a lot of travel from country to country, fine restaurants, meeting different kinds of people. I mean, they loved life and that's evident in these films there's a real love of life in franco stuff <laughs> i was gonna apologies i was gonna say too even uh I, I mean you know i cover more than just uh horror movies on this show but uh and i know you're not someone that, that tackles these movies from like a political perspective but there there even is like a weird i think um at, at times you you can get an insight into sort of socio-political things from watching Franco's movies or Roland's movies even. Uh, so for instance, you know, I think if you watch those sixties Franco movies, uh, you know, the sort of pulp spy thrillers, they always deal with like mind control and things of that nature. And it sort of gives you an insight into that period in, in Spain under the, you know, the Franco regime. Do you think there's exactly. like a, uh, historical value, I guess, in these films? Yeah. I mean, well, again, Two levels. So the spy movies, the guys with the money, the Harry Allen Towers or whoever it was, was putting these projects together, had an obligation to deliver a, prod, a product. So the spy movies, you know, why Europe saw a glut of spy movies uh, post James Bond. I mean, there was just James Bond, Matt Helm, whatever. Those movies were hot. They were just cranking them out in Europe. Right. Um, so. The Franco movies were part of that, you know, the two female spies with flowered panties. They were all just kind of like, you know, bondish ripoffs, right? In a way. But as you mentioned, when you're watching and you're seriously studying Jess Franco, you know that he was an outsider. He was a rebel. He was um, uh, someone who loved to fuck and eat and live. And, you know, that kind of freedom was not available to Spaniards. That's why he, mostly he never made movies in Spain during any of this. He made them in France. He made them in Germany. He made them in Italy. He made them all over the world and except Spain because he couldn't do the kinds of things he wanted to do. So absolutely, there is a rejection of the sort of oppressive fascist conformity that um, stifled his art and kind of drove him out of his homeland from making the kinds of films he wanted to make. Um, so yeah, I, I would not, even though I don't Yes, I'm not a terribly political person. And sometimes, uh, you know, an apple is just an apple. But if you really study Franco and know where he was coming from, absolutely, there was something bubbling behind the surface. These movies were trying to make statements and not in any kind of, uh, you know, pretentious, 
uh, on the nose kind of way. Right. It he wasn't like, not, oh, I'm giving you the message. No, this and that's why the movies the movie. don't date themselves by saying anything specific about a time or place. But um, he, he may not even have been conscious of, of making those political statements. And that happens in the best of genre films, too. I remember. I was you know, going to say, I think it's true with like Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, sure. You can really feel that this was made during the era of Watergate, during the right, era right. of Vietnam. So, I mean, yeah. you know, Chainsaw Massacre is kind of just a, a, a deliverance ripoff in some respects, you know. Um, but it's, it's made at a time and a place with a certain uh, demographic of young person that was plugged into the zeitgeist. And, and that movie was absolutely a part of that bubble of culture. I mean, and it wasn't trying to say something about the world they were living in. I don't think it was just, just happened. Uh, Night of the Living Dead, same thing. You know, they hire the best guy for the job in Pittsburgh, the only guy that can actually fucking act. And that's Dwayne Jones, who happens to be black. They put him in the film. The movie, that role of Ben was not written for a black character. It was just an, an, a person. And they put him in it. And and when George is driving the print to New York for the premiere, he turns on the radio and Martin Luther King Jr. had just been assassinated. And so suddenly his movie becomes this sort of important horror film that may or may not be saying things about uh, uh, the black experience in America. He wasn't it's trying to say that, but maybe by accident he ended up saying that because that was the, what was happening around him in the peripheral. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, Romero being young at the time, maybe he he just had different ideas than the older generation. He was open uh, to casting Dwayne Jones. I mean, there's a lot at play there. Yeah, so that that in and of itself, it shows you that Romero's sensibilities as a political filmmaker, which he ended up becoming and owning that, but were happening in the sense that he just said, fuck the color, fuck the stigma, fuck the and perhaps commercial risk of putting a black actor, a not black unknown actor, it's not Sidney Poitier here, a black unknown actor as the lead may have been a bit risky for an independent film, but he didn't care. He just wanted the best actor for the job. So, yeah, there's there's always stuff in the best genre films. There are political things happening, uh, sociopolitical things happening. And I think in the best of them, they're not there by design. They're there just because they happen to. Everything just kind of connects, you know. Definitely, definitely. Now. We, we got to segue into uh, your latest book. And you already have another book coming out in 2024. So uh, you were working hard, man. But uh, you have a book. I have, uh, two, I have two, actually. I saw, I'm doing really? two books. But that one doesn't come out until 2020. The the third book, and I haven't said anything yet, is a, um, a history of the making of David Cronenberg's Shivers. Oh, um, my God. I look forward yeah, to that. Yeah, which one. I'm very close to that project and very close to David and, and all those people. And uh, Montreal was shot, you know, I'm Canadian, so it's, it means a big deal to me culturally. Um, so, yeah, but that hasn't, that's a little further down the pike. But I am sort of slowly putting that, building that beast right now. But yeah, I do have a second book coming out um, in, in the spring. Yeah. Yeah. Art Trash Terror uh, Art Adventures trash in terror, Strange yeah. Cinema, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. But the book that I really was interested in talking to you about, and I had a bunch of listeners that, uh, I, I told them who you were, and they said, oh, what's he working on? I mentioned this book, and they were like, oh, I actually love those movies. So we're talking about the book Corman slash Poe, interviews and essays exploring the making of Roger Corman's Edgar Allan Poe films, 1960 to 1964, with a foreword by Roger Corman. Uh, for people that are unfamiliar with the Roger Corman Poe films, uh, can you give an insight into them? Because I think a lot of people will think – Oh, Roger Corman, he made those like cheap, uh, you know, blood boobs and beasts, right? Th those type of movies. But the, 
there's something singular about his Poe movies. I almost feel like they almost feel separate at a time from a lot of his other films. There's something really lavish about them. I mean, I, I love all of Roger's films, but there's something really special about the Poe films. And not just the ones with Vincent Price. I know he did a few uh, with like Ray Milan, one or two. Uh, so there's something about those films that stands out, though, whenever you talk about Corman's filmography. Um, yeah, so the Corman's exploits, more exploitative things happened under the – after he left American International Pictures and started his own company, New World. And uh, he had kind of forgot – he he – wasn't interested in directing anymore. He wanted to simply produce. And although he did ghost direct a lot of those pictures, but they were absolutely exploitation films and, and, and tapping into that zeitgeist of the 1970s. Roger's always been a guy, even to this day, 97 years old, almost 98, um, trying his best to not just figure out what's happening now, but what's just what's about to happen, you know, and successfully exploiting that. But the Poe films are interesting because they represent a couple well they represent a couple of things they represent um roger the director at his apex i mean roger i, I think it was um fellini because roger you know later on through new world he was one of the first guys to distribute fellini and bergman and kurosawa to the to the drive-ins man he brought that shit into the drive-ins and would double bill it with his own tawdry pictures and introduced young a lot of young people to these um, art house films in a, in a way that they normally would never have seen these movies. So Roger's always been a stu student of, you know, he's has a degree in English literature. He's a very intelligent, culturally sophisticated individual, again, who really loves movies, really loves cinema and understands the history of cinema and also the international reach of cinema. Uh, and he's a, just a great director. So those movies represent Roger, the director, the filmmaker, who's who has something to say about the world he lives in and has something to prove and is absolutely trying to create a kind of art that's also happens to be commercial. Um, but why do those movies exist? And that's because Roger is a young guy uh, in the 1950s, the mid 1950s, um, after working at 20th Century Fox, you know, in the typing pool and not really getting his dues and not enjoying that and going over to England and getting his degree and in literature and coming back and really thinking he can make a go of it on his own. He he did. He started creating um, uh, his first movie he produced. He didn't direct it. A guy named Wyatt Ordung uh, directed it. It was called Monster from the Ocean Floor in 1954. He shot it for nothing <coughs> and sold it for a lot. And he moved on to things like Fast and the Furious. And um, anyways, long story short, American International Pictures was a uh, an upstart distribution production company that was bubbling around at the exact same time. And Roger kind of barnacled onto them, sold them a movie, made them a, a multi-picture deal where he would always get a bit of an advance. And he became their golden boy, just cranking out these low-budget exploitation, you know, films that cater to young people, primarily. Creature from the Haunted Sea. That's one of my brother's favorite yeah, movies. Yeah, that was a little bit. He was make, made that right in the thrust of making the Poe films. But he was making things like um, really great gangster movies like Machine Gun Kelly with Charles Bronson and Attack of the Crab Monsters and uh, The Day uh, Time Ended or The Day the World Ended. And just great, great stuff that, again, functioned as, as commercial, drive-in, low-budget, exploitation stuff that the kids love. This was the dawn of youth culture, right? With rock and roll and television where kids were discovering monster movies for the first time because, you know, the studios were selling off their old, uh, the universal was selling all their back lot. So kids were watching these movies 
on TV for the first time. So it was like monsters and rock and roll. And, right, and right. Fucking- and it's it, not to interrupt you, but it's also the time where you have, you know, AIP really knew what was going on. And in a way, they they helped, you know, save the American cinema because the drive-ins get big. And, you know, Sam Arkoff and that whole crew of people understand. They're like, there's an emerging youth market, you know? So you're getting all these films that are meant to appeal to like, Right, because of, but, but, teenage, teenagers were never, I mean, teenagers were, you know, throughout Hollywood, kids liked movies, they went to movies, but you rarely saw teenagers being the heroes of the films, <clears throat> the main characters. It just wasn't, there was no point of entry for kids to go, that's me. So that's why stuff like I was a teenage werewolf and teenage friend, teenage caveman, all that teenage shit was just like, oh, wow, it was like a revelation to that old generation. They really felt seen, um, you know. And they were just fun, trashy little movies. And again, always incorporated what was happening at the time. A little bit of politics, a little bit of rock and roll. Don't trust anyone over it. I guess that philosophy came a bit later, but it was bubbling. Um, and Roger really kind of latched onto that. But was also like, if you watch a Roger Corman exploitation movie from AIP in the 50s, they are there's always something cool going on underneath. They're smarter than they look. Uh, Attack of the Crab Monsters shouldn't be as intelligent and eerie as it is, but it, it is. There's a lot happening in that film subtextually that I find fascinating. Um, and the gangster films too. I mean, they're cut above. Like, uh, like so, anyways, actually, with a movie like Crap Monsters, out of curiosity. Well, I mean, it's all about it's all about identity. There's a um, Roger was always, a, especially at this period, was really lo- locking down hard on on psychosexual, philo- like Freudian theories, and and so he was finding ways to kind of bring them into the back end of his films, and not in any kind of explicit way, but. Attack of the Crab Monsters is is all about um, is all about identity, and there's a there's a sexual element to it that's strange. And you know, when the crab monsters are trying to, the whole idea is that they're not just crab monsters coming out of the water, going, blah, 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 blah. You, because of budgetary reasons, but also in an ingenious way. You never really see the monsters a, a lot of them, anyways. When they finally murder their prey, they they actually absorb them entirely, like the fucking thing or something. You know, they absorb them. And then they trick, they fool other people. Men are fooling their wives going, come on out, honey. Come on, come here. You know, they find a way to mimic so that they can absorb their next victim. So there's just really something bizarre and and, uh, and phantasmagorical and, and cerebral happening on the end of this film, which didn't need to happen in order to make the money. You know, that title and that poster could have brought in the pundits easily enough, but Corman was never... Uh, you know, didn't want to never rested on his laurels. He always wanted to give something a little more. So by the time he gets to the end of the fifties, he sees what's happening. Even though he said he didn't see what's happening with hammer horror. I don't believe that, but that kind of full go- uh, color Gothic revamp uh, that was happening in the late 1950s coming out of hammer. And it was very commercially successful. And he goes to American international pictures and says, look, instead of me making two or three of these black and white little pot boilers back to back, why don't we take that budget and throw it into one color film that's a little more evolved. And the, that first film was the fall of the house of Usher, which, you know, Poe being dead was, you know, a, a commercially viable choice because that material was in the public domain. So you wouldn't have to pay for that. So, and, and every kid at that time was studying Poe in school, Roger studied Poe in school. So kids were more literate back then, I think, because they were reading the classics. Uh, so they would appeal to the kids, but it also appealed to the kids' parents. Casting wise, you cast Vincent Price in the role who is, an actor who was starting to find some credibility with the youth because he was in uh, having a second wave career in horror films like House of Wax and William Castle's House on London Hill and, and The, the Fly. Tingler. 
and the tingler yeah so all those the great little movies where he was becoming kind of a name in the genre but he was also mom and dad loved him because he was you know it was in like Otto uh, Preminger's Laura and he was you know it was in tons of uh Dragon Wick and he was in tons of movies that they remembered so it was an ingenious bit of casting to put him in there it appealed to a double-edged market it was it was much more literate than the average AIP film so you could bring in again a more sophisticated crowd but also bring in the kids it was appealed to it had mass appeal and it was gorgeous also at this point you mentioned the the kind of opulence <clears throat> the look of these movies Roger had this um the Corman crew was in full effect at this point Throughout the 50s, he had uh, the way he hired and fired is he had a call a list with three columns. So he'd work on one picture and it's like whoever, you know, did what needed to get done and did it well was in the yes column. I'll work with that guy every time. If they were sort of OK and maybe needed a couple more pictures to get a little more seasoned, and there was potential. They'd go in the maybe column and then you could use them a couple more times. And if they flunked out after that couple more times, they'd end up in that third column, which was the fuck off column, basically where these guys will never work with me again. So after a few pictures, Roger assembled the best crew in Hollywood to the point where they were called the Corman crew and other independent studios would hire the crew like a like a gang, like a unit. So it was a well-oiled machine of young, um, you know, up and coming, uh, you know, artists like uh, production designer Daniel Haller, um, you know, seasoned composers like Les Baxter. Um, he... Um, Floyd Crosby, who was an Oscar-winning cinematographer who couldn't get any work in Hollywood anymore, but who had you know had won an Oscar for a movie called Taboo and was the father of uh, David Crosby, incidentally, from Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young, um, could get him for a song and say, look, I can't pay you what you're used to, but I can promise you work in bulk. So he was getting these great-looking films, and everything was kind of firing on every cylinder. And so that represents that first film, commercial success, AIP was happy. The critics were kind. The movies were doing very well overseas. And the French were starting to go, holy shit, this Corman guy, he's a bit of an auteur, isn't he? He's a bit of a genius. Uh, so everyone, everything was working. So that's why over the next four years, we get another seven pictures that would be now retroactively called, uh, referred to as the post cycle and are the subject of that uh, little book you mentioned that I wrote. So it starts with uh, the fall of the house of, uh, of Usher, and then, so the pit and the pendulum, wasn't that the one that was- That's my favorite. Incidentally, that's my, that is my favorite of the, all of them. I just watched it again. I have a 16 mil print of that. I just watched it again yesterday. It never, I never, that movie kicks me in the ass every time. I was going to say, was that one of the Poe movies I think was in black and white, right? Was that- pit You're wrong. No, no, no. There no, is a were... Tower of, he did do Tower of London, I think in 62, which has um, Vincent Price in it and it's, kind of sort of feels <laughs> maybe kind of like a Poe film. It's obviously not, but no, they, all the films were in full blooded, uh, blood dripping, uh, opulent color. All of them. Yeah. And, and of course the pit and the pendulum has, uh, the great Barbara Steele, right? Barbara Steele and God lover, you know, she was dubbed, um, because Roger thought her accent was a little bit too, uh, working class. Uh, but Barbara was used to that. You know, she's a British actress who uh, AIP kind of tuned into her because she was in uh, Mario Bava's Black Sunday, which AIP had picked up for distribution in America. And it was a big hit. So it was their way of kind of like continuing that through line of gothic horror. And uh, Barbara ended up in this this picture and was dubbed by somebody else, uh, which 
I guess she she was probably okay with because you rarely heard Barbara Steele's voice, even though she was incredibly prolific throughout the 1960s. Rarely, if ever, did you actually hear her her actual British accented speaking voice. She was always dubbed. So I got to ask about uh, one of the interesting ones uh, in this cycle is the Haunted Palace, which mm. it's a it, it is a part of the post cycle. It's called Edgar Allan Poe's The Haunted Palace, yeah. but it's based on a Lovecraft story, isn't it? Sure. And and the funny thing is, is that they spell um, Poe's name wrong in the credits, which is funny. They spell Alan oh, really? wrong. <laughs> yeah, with, with a single owl, which is hilarious to me. And, and that's kind of insult to injury for Roger, because, you know, let's back it up a little bit. Roger never wanting to duplicate, repeat himself. And so if you watch those Poe films, the only two that are kind of kissing cousins, I feel, are maybe uh, Pit in the Pendulum and House of Usher both written by Richard Matheson, both feel like they kind of like are built on the same basic setup. And, uh, <clears throat> but Roger was always trying to mix it up. So in 62, he go, he does the, um, the premature burial, but he says, fuck AIP. They're not paying me what I'm worth. I know these movies are hot. I can do it on my own. He teams up with their, their lab path, a student path, a labs who are now dipping their toes into production as well. And he says, look, let's work my company, your company together. We'll do this movie separate. Can't get Vincent because Vincent is now working uh, under contract with AIP, but we can get Ray Milland and we'll just repeat the formula. Same crew, everything. And uh, the first day of shooting, Roger goes on set, think, feeling his own feelings, thinking, okay, I'm making the movie my way, different, uh, a little bit different than the rest and away from AIP. And Sam Arkoff and Jim Nicholson are on set. And Roger's like, well, this, this is actually a nice gesture. These... My old bosses are coming, um, coming to the set to, to you know to say hello and wish me well. Well, no, they weren't. They shook his hand and they said, "Roger, good, uh, congrats. We're working together again. We just bought Path A Labs." So they're always <laughs> they're kind of and that's AIP. If we even throughout the seven, early seven, they're always trying to fuck edge people out. I mean, that's just probably why they were so successful. So uh, and then we get to the haunted palace and Roger wanted to break away from the post cycle and adapt Lovecraft and that was the first time feature length than it was anyone had ever adapted Lovecraft. Um, so he uh, he starts production on that. He films this, you know, the, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, the, the Lovecraft story. And then at the end, uh, AIP again goes, you know, this movie would do a lot better if we tied it back into the series. So they retitled it Edgar Allan Poe's The Haunted Palace, stuck a little bit of Poe poetry at the beginning and end, and hey, voila, and off it went. Uh, and even though Roger, you know, to me and to most people who've questioned him about this, he's such a diplomatic, easygoing guy. He never says anything untoward about his old bosses, but I can imagine he was fucking furious about that. One that I remember uh, some of the like theater kids I knew in high school really liked was The Raven. And that's a really interesting one, not just because of the cast. I mean, it's an all star cast. Uh, but also because it's not like a straight horror movie. It's a horror comedy. Do you want to talk a little bit about that one? Well, yeah, it is a comedy. It's a very broad-based comedy, although a macabre one. Again, not wanting to repeat himself. Um, Richard Matheson, who had written uh, the great Richard Matheson, for maybe your, some of your readers don't know who he is. He was, you know, one of the... I am legend. Right, I am legend. I mean, it, 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 I mean oh, that movie with Will Smith? No, no, for, fuck that movie. I am legend. If you've read the novel and you have no reason not to read it, it's a perfect book. It's it's a great work of existentialism. It's 
a great horror book, great science fiction book, great. Uh, it's a great everything. It's a great. His, his, it's a masterpiece. Uh, Spud Matheson had also written a series about like the Incredible Shrink or the Shrinking Man, which was adapted into Jack Arnold's The Incredible Shrinking Man. He was one of the only writers that Rod Serling had handpicked to also write some of the episodes of The Twilight Zone, and mostly Serling wrote those themselves. But uh, he felt, you know, Matheson had that same vibe, so Matheson was instrumental in that first season, anyways, of The Zone. Um, and just you know, uh, one of the greatest writers of all time, even then. Uh, so he, he, he wrote Usher, he wrote Pin the Pendulum, he wrote Tales of Terror. But by the time they got to the Raven, both Roger and Richard were both sick of this kind of vibe and sick of how po-faced these movies were, no pun intended. And uh, they decided to mix it up. They had some success with the Black Cat with a little bit of comedy, introducing some comedy into this, uh, the sequence of the Black, uh, not the Black Cat, Tales of Terror, the Black Cat sequence um, with uh, Peter Lorre. Uh, and and Vincent and Joyce Jameson. So they figured, why don't we take that and just blow it up? Just kick the fucking door down. And that's what The Raven is. It's a full-blown... I mean, you can't really make a movie based on a poem anyways. So they just took, again, the the idea of The Raven and they went in a complete maniacal direction, which I know some purists of the series kind of curl their lip a little bit because it's a, maybe a bit too goofy. But if you oh, really, really watch it, I, I know a lot of people that love that movie when I, well, I knew high it's, school it, kids. It's a standalone thing, but it is pretty, pretty goof. I know I, for instance, was always thought it was a little bit too, too much. <laughs> but watching it again, it's very macabre. And, uh, you know, Hazel Court's character is the, you know, there's always kind of a bitch goddess in these movies, like a really nasty femme fatale. And Hazel Court's character is probably the nastiest of them all. Um, there's also a little bit of, I mean, all the all the elements from the Poe pictures are there. There's a depravity, a melancholy. They're just not taken particularly serious on the surface. But if you scratch that surface a little bit, you'll see something a little bit darker at the nucleus of the Raven. So it's it's actually a really, um, you know, fantastic experiment that that paid off. A hell of a cast too. Like I said, I mean, you got Price, Laurie, Karloff, Court. And Jack Nicholson's in it too, Young right? Jack Nicholson playing Young Peter Lorre's son. And that right. dynamic of the two of them together, Im they were both improving and bouncing off each other. You know, Jack was more of coming out of the method acting. And Peter Lorre, who was not a method actor, but was a European actor. And so, by and large, kind of was a method actor at this point because he didn't take these American low-budget movies seriously. And he, you know, smirked his way and improved his way through most of these pictures. So, <laughs> the two of them together, playing father and son, it's the funniest thing in the movie. I was going to say in regards to Nicholson, and this ties back to Corman, you had a lot of guys like Nicholson and Peter Fonda that end up in, you know, various exploitation movies. But in, in a weird way, they're like the bridge between, uh, you know, old Hollywood and new Hollywood. You, you eventually get new Hollywood with stuff like Easy Rider. And I feel like Corman's uh, almost the bridge between that old Hollywood and the new Hollywood. Yeah, he's the he, I mean, he's the founding father of the American independent film, I, I think, you know. And absolutely, he... Now, that's because, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, because he saw new talent and he always kept his fingers on the pulse of what was happening. But it's also a, you know, commercial reason too. Young people who are hungry to break into the business will work for nothing. So he, he could get all these young actors this new wave of actors and um, put them to work and give them credits 
but he could do it for very, very, very little money. He did it with uh, directors too. I think he gave Scorsese his start with uh, Boxcar Bertha. Scorsese, right? uh, Co- Francis Coppola was his, um, you know, ghost directed a lot of the the Haunted Palace. He was his right hand man, and and Corman produced uh, Coppola's first movie, Dementia Thirteen, um, which Coppola also wrote because they had a couple of days left in Ireland after filming The Young Racers. And he said, look, we need another movie. We got the cast. We got everyone here. Francis, go home, write me a script, and we'll start filming in a couple of days. And that's how Dementia 13 was was born. Um, and later Jonathan on, Ron Demi Howard. Jonathan too, right? Jonathan Demi. I mean, the, the uh, Jonathan Kaplan. I mean, the list is long, 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 long. They, they called it, you know, Corman School. <laughs> no one got paid <laughs> shit, but you learn the ABCs of making movies. And uh, that's why everyone loves him. I mean, even now, like recently... This past year has been kind of a renaissance. You know, my book comes out uh, right in the middle of that. Uh, Criterion Channel decides to do a Carmen Poe thing on, on the channel and people are rediscovering the movies. And, and uh, you know, I, I launched the book in, in um, L.A. in June and Roger had literally flown back from Cannes a couple of days before just for our launch because he was in Cannes getting this big Lifetime Achievement Award from Quentin Tarantino. So, I mean, he's it was, he was going all over the place. And then a couple of weeks ago, as of this recording, he was uh, Beyond Fest did a big tribute to Roger Corman where Ron Howard was there and everyone was out there just loving Roger on stage and talking about him and screening his films. And so he's, um, I would say that he's having a moment, but I, I don't think Roger never, di- never did not have a moment. You know what I mean? I think Roger's miraculously, it's not like time has caught up to Roger. I think he has been celebrated since day one and he's had so many different incarnations and he's been so much a part of the conversation of cinema uh, through multiple, again, generations that I think, um, I think, I think the culture has always respected, admired and admired Roger. He's never taken himself terribly seriously. uh, So maybe that's part of it. He can always laugh at some of the uh, crazy shit that he's ended up putting on screen. Um, but also, again, as you mentioned, all the the legion of talent, Jim Cameron, James Cameron. I mean, the legion of talent that he has mentored that have gone on to become the architects of the current wave of, of cinema um, and beyond. I mean, he's just um, Roger Corman is is cinema. You know, he, he truly, truly is. And again, 97. Look, man, we did our book launch. He's 97. Came limo. I got the limo, picked him up, picked him up, came to the launch, hung out, met everybody. He could have stayed there longer. Took him out to the smokehouse in Burbank for dinner. I booked like an hour. I think 97-year-old guy, maybe one hour. Fuck that. He just kept pop, pop, popping back the martinis and the Chardonnay. He just wanted to talk. He wanted to tell stories. I'm like, Roger, the limo's here. He's like, oh, that dude would have closed the restaurant. He's indefatigable. His mind do, do wants you to think, get him- do, do you think that's one of the reasons? You know, I've talked to people that have worked with Roger, like um, the, the film historian Joseph McBride, who helped write uh, – rock and roll high school and what what i often hear from people is i had some issues with him when it came to money at one point but everyone loves roger you know like it yeah, seems you, you, like he's look, such you a sign up, personality you know, you know you know who you're dancing with right right with roger <laughs> it's like you're not no one's in it if you are then you're you're wrong you and then you're delusional you're going to learn shit you're going to be part of something bigger than what you are if you work in the roger corman world and you're going to learn something um and yeah, of course, Roger, a little tight with money, but he's even, he's in on his own joke. I think it was one of those Sharktopus movies that Roger had a kind of a renaissance with a few years ago. And he's in it. He's walking through down the beach with his little metal detector. 
as like a beach bum. And he goes down, he finds a penny. And he's like, ah. And then the shark comes and eats him. Like even Roger was in on his own gag about being a bit of a, a skin flint, you know. I think it's his likable personality that, you know, mm-hmm. even if you've ever had a problem with Roger, uh, people always say he's so likable that you, you, you get over it, you know. But um, I, I also want, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, I know his his wife has also been involved in the movie business with him, Jolie. Uh, do you, I mean, do you think Jolie ever gets overlooked? Because I, I do think she's made her own contributions, not to take anything away from Roger either, by the way. Um, Julie is a, a dear friend of mine. I adore Julie. <laughs> Sometimes she gets labeled as being a bit too caustic. But if it wasn't for Julie, I, I think a lot of this, especially this last 25 years, when in the Rogerverse, wouldn't be happening. She's a force of nature. She's definitely had her own little, carved out her own little niche in that world. Uh, you know, her series of family films. Um, you know, she's she's a very important producer in and of herself, in her own right. Um, but she also keeps that machine rolling. Julie is, um, you know, Roger's world is very, and I think always has been, but even more so now, is very mom and pop. There's not too many people involved in the day-to-day mechanisms of the Corman household. And if it wasn't for Julie uh, keeping that machine going, I don't think it would, I think it would collapse. So A, Julie, you know, there's a scene in that, that Corman's World documentary where Roger's on his way to get his um, Academy Award. And Julie's uh, there straightening his tie. That one scene years ago, like 10 years ago, talking to her about that, I remember that really bothered her because it kind of showed that that's all I'm here for. I'm just the person that straightens Roger's tie. Like She gets it. People show up to the party because it's Roger's world. But Julie is so much more than the person that straightens Roger's tie in that in that partnership. Um, she really, really is... Uh, underrated as a word for sure professionally undervalued 100 percent culturally speaking she doesn't ask to be valued i think that's the other thing as well right she doesn't go out there and and demand respect but she's definitely should be entitled to much more than she gets definitely definitely i mean you know i, I always i remember talking to jim Wynorski the one time and he said yeah jolie just said shoot the serenity house massacre 2 movie while roger's out so yeah, I think, and then, and then the, story, the, the story there, I remember Jim saying, I think, or somebody said it was with part two, was that they wanted to redo their their living room or something. Like they wanted to kind of restructure uh, or get new whatever fixtures or I don't know, something. And they had to put together a movie real, real quick uh, to do that. And I think that was what what that was. Roger's away. Like, Jim, let's just get this fucking thing going. We need a big, we need to get a movie made to, to get that little dose of dough to justify doing this job. Uh, so fair enough, man. I mean, that's the, that's what they, these guys do. God bless them. That, you know, I would say Charlie band and Roger Corman, when they leave, there's no one else doing what they do. It's like, Oh, well, Blumhouse is no, they're not. Blumhouse is a completely different animal. It's 10 times it's independent. My ass is 10 times more corporate. Um, there's, there's no one doing what Roger uh, Corman has been doing for the past, you know, 60 years, 70 years. So you've known Roger for what? I, I mean, over 20 years, right? Or, or 20 almost... years, but we never met. So, because I live in Toronto and, and you know, we'd, um, you know, I mean, dozens and dozens of conversations and and things that we, you know, I've been doing stuff with the Corman family. I, I helped them out with their Corman's drive-in for a while and and uh, outsourced like social media stuff. For, I mean, I was just like 
I'll do anything for Roger. If he called me right now and says, I need this, I need you to kill somebody. Probably wouldn't kill anybody, but I'd, I'd think about it for a beat. Um, you know, I, I adore, adore those guys, but I never actually met them in the flesh. So it wasn't until this past summer, after we put our book together during the pandemic, when we were both under lockdown, that we actually came together in the flesh. So, yeah. Well, what, what I wanted to ask was, I mean, you've talked to Roger uh, before this project. So what's the greatest insight you've gotten from Roger about the filmmaking process just in your years of talking to him? Well, I mean, Roger is a, a practical dreamer. And I didn't start making movies. You know, it's been, I've been making movies now 10 years, uh, 11 movies in 10 years. Um, but I didn't start actually making films until years later. And even though someone's like, well, your movies aren't like Rogers, like, well, actually they kind of are, you know, they may not look like the Carmen Poe movies, but in my mind, I feel like the, I'm, I'm pulling out little bits, but it's also not just what's on screen. It's the philosophy. Rogers philosophies about making movies are timeless. They transcend uh, technical uh, limitations, demands, whatever the current, tech is, the current gear is, there's nothing to do with that. The current marketplace, nothing to do with that. There are evergreen uh, artistic philosophies that Roger had developed at a young age that he never changed. And that is never shoot above your means, you know, deliver what you can deliver within the parameters of what you have. Um, and then always deliver something more. <clears throat> Roger, Roger, I think the most important thing Roger ever said to me uh, that I carry with me is about it's it's about subtext, text and subtext. That every good picture, every good genre picture, um, needs to have a text, of course, to keep the grease running, keep the machine running, so there's an identifiable story and all the things you need to have a satisfying A to B to C entertainment. And but there has to be a subtext. That subtext can be wrong, doesn't matter, but there has to be a, some ulterior message underneath the surface. But the subtext can never, should never usurp the text. It should never take it over. It should not lead. The subtext should never lead. The subtext should always be buried in the mix enough because that's what kind of hits you on a subconscious level when you're watching it. That's what makes you want to revisit the picture and, and, and may, multiple times maybe decipher something. That's The subtext is what gives it its secret kind of power. Uh, the text is the uh, the hook. No, I agree with that. I was going to say, you know, I remember watching a documentary about the making of Galaxy of Terror. And, you know, it was funny because my friend said to me, you know, I originally thought this was just an alien ripoff. But then Roger describes it and he's describing all these sort of uh, psychological things going on in the movie that the movie is really all about sort of this uh, just the psychology affair. And, you know, I think that is why these movies get remembered so much. Um I just have one or two more questions when it came to Roger Corman. Uh, you know, one thing that I think gets overlooked uh, with his career is some of the films he makes in the late 60s and early 70s, like The Trip and also the movie Gas, uh, which I think is subtitled, what is it? Uh, or it became necessary to necessary destroy the to world. destroy it in order to save the world or whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. right. It, you know, <laughs> in a weird way, I think those films are an embodiment yeah. of the sort of uh, psychedelic 60s, 70s, you know, counterculture. I think he he embodied that in a lot of ways in that cycle of counterculture films he did. Could you speak to that? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you watch the Poe films, for instance, 
they have those moments in it with that are our dream sequence moments, fantasy moments where it becomes pure cinema and there's double filtered uh, color, you know, there's double filtered uh, lenses, colors, uh, you know, multiple things going on there that have usually moving in slow motion, just music driven, no dialogue. And I always say that's, and even the opening of like the pit and the pendulum opens up with melting paint and colors while Les Baxter's doom laden score is pulses in the background. And, and it, there's no story, there's nothing, but that's the way it intro, you intro, are introduced into this world. And it's psychedelia before there was such a thing in the people's mind and language. You know, there was no psychedelic culture, people. But Roger was already playing with that kind of bizarre free form, you know, breaking free of the structure. And again, speaking to the id that he was really interested in doing. He was fascinated with doing. Um, and, you know, after he made Tomb of Lygia in England, that's when he said, fuck it, no more Poe movies. I want to go on the streets. I can feel something happening. I can feel the culture changing. Yeah, he and made I some be... biker movies too around that time. Yeah, he yeah. made so he made hell, you know, the, the Hell's Angels on Wheels. I mean, he he was um uh you know wanted to get down there on the streets with the youth and kind of figure out what the fuck was going on. So you're right, he had that slew of pictures. Easy Rider would not have existed without Roger. Maybe you got Peter Fonda and Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, all these guys were bubbling around making these biker pictures for Roger, and that's was the story. They went off and said, look. If we're going to do it, let's do it on our own. And that's where Easy Rider kind of showed up and changed the rules, right? Um, but Roger was making the trip with Fonda. Crazy shit uh, where, you know, Roger actually even took acid just to figure I out. Was like, gonna well, say, I was going to say he took the trip make a movie, Yeah, if I'm going to make a movie about a, a, tr- a drug trip, I need to know what the fuck I'm talking about. So he actually did that. And it was a pretty good experience, he said, you know. But then the movie ends on a positive note, really, when Peter Fonda kind of looks out of the ocean and and you think, Okay, well, you know, maybe the, the trip was great. I'm glad I took it, and now I can see more. I'm now more at peace. But AIP said, no, now you're making it a pro-drug movie. So they ended up shattering the the lens at the end to kind of give it this feeling like, oh, now he's fucked. The future is shitty for this character. And that's when Roger kind of said, you know what? I got to get away from these guys because they're going to you know, clip my balls at every turn. And now that I'm making a more counterculture, more avant-garde kind of like immediate, urgent kind of picture i need to get away from these stodgy old pricks and that's when feathered the or planted the seeds so the seeds for him to start a new world but that last gasp of aip you're right with the uh, gas and the and uh, the trip and, and some of those biker pictures where roger's shedding the skin of the post cycle in many respects shaking it off you know dusting himself off and getting a little bit dirtier more verite and his gangster movies too. He you know he made um one of his last great AIP masterpieces. I think is Bloody Mama with Shelley Winters, which uh, young Robert De Niro's in that. Bruce Dern, <clears throat> Don Scardino. But I mean that's a fucking masterpiece. That kind of even though it's a gangster movie set during the Depression, feels like a youth culture movie. You know what I mean? It's it's got that energy to it that's just fucking wild. Yeah, I'm actually a big fan of that movie. I would recommend people love check it out. Love, uh, love I think Don Stroud is in it too, right? No, sorry, not Don Scardino, Don Stroud, you're right. Yeah, yeah, Don Stroud and also, I mean, young Robert De Niro is great in it. But um, before we start closing out, was there anything, what's the most interesting bit of, uh, you know, behind the scenes that you got from researching the post-cycle films? Because this book has, you know, uh, stills that have never before been published unpublished documents direct from the AIP vaults. Uh, What's the most interesting uh, thing you uncovered from your research? 
it's it's a move it's a book that came out so organically because it's hard for me to say i researched it i i grew up watching these movies you know my dad was the one that kind of sparked it in me when i was a kid by saying he saw the raven on television and this incredible film about these dueling sorcerers and, and it's before vhs and you know you had to be lucky if that whatever movie you were thinking about showed up on television then yay otherwise you're it's these things exist in myth and are like you know uh, old ghost stories handed down from generations you know uh or read about them in the library because you know we didn't have an internet or you know all that shit so that was all it was always part of my life was obsessing over these movies when i finally saw them that was it and then uh professionally through 20 years of interviewing roger and you know all the peripheral people too like i was uh you know, friends with Dick Miller and all these guys and having the co constant conversations about the making of these movies and just absorbing all this information <clears throat> that I don't feel like I actually really researched this book. You know, these are just questions I wanted to ask uh, about these movies. I wanted to get the official document from the horse's mouth about the making of these pictures and put all our conversations in a, a concise, clean little volume that hopefully will be a decent contribution to the culture and last. But the one thing I, I did find really interesting is I wasn't that aware about, even though I was very aware about the uh, Catholic Church being instrumental in, uh, you know, censor boards across Europe and and uh, even America, uh, I wasn't as acutely aware of its effect on on some of these kind of outsider indie movies like the AIP stuff. I thought that oh, was relegated really? more. Not really. I thought it was more relegated towards uh, upper upper tier Hollywood shit. So. But they affected these movies too. Okay. Yeah. So even you know, I, I even um, I knew Mask of the Red Death had been cut to some degree, and had been with my friend John Davison and and along with Joe Dante worked to restore that print. The current version of Mask available is the full version. But um, yeah, I didn't know the mechanics behind that. So uh, in the in the book on the back end, yes, I have all these great documents that John Davison had given me, gifted me to publish which were the back and forth between the Catholic Legion of Decency and uh, and American International Pictures, arguing about what the fuck are you trying to tell us what this movie's about? You know, Mask of the Red Death is clearly on the side of good. Although it does muddy the waters with some of the dialogue, it's not pro-devil, okay? It's not pro-Satan at all. Prince is a bad fucking guy. But so much of it, the church wanted to take away so as not to, you know, with censorship, it's always like we don't want to inspire the idiot to watch this and, and and think something else. We want them to think exactly what we want them to think. So there was all this back and forth between AIP and the shit that they had to relent to in order to get this film passed. When really they could have passed it without the Catholic Legion of Decency, but they knew that they would get cultural blowback from those guys. And they wanted they wanted it to be you know, peace in the fucking valley because the last thing they wanted is the church railing about how this movie was, you know, going to fuck you up. So they, it's, it's actually a fascinating back. I only published parts of the documents, but <laughs> so I think that was the most kind of like, wow, crazy. And the other thing is, you know, some of the uh, international posters, which are gorgeous for some of these movies, uh, the way these movies were marketed in other countries is always interesting with any American film, depending on what country you would see the picture they would try to sell you a different kind of movie. And, uh, you know, some of the Italian posters for like Tales of Terror, for instance, 
have shit on the front that has nothing to do with that movie whatsoever. Like two chicks in negligees and like just wild, crazy shit. That is, uh, is funny. I mean, that's why those posters are so great when we see how these movies, A, their global reach, but also the way um, it, different distributors would try to sell these movies to their prospective publics was interesting too. You know, what, what's weird for me about these post-cycle films, and I don't know if you'd agree with this, is, um, you know, I, I saw some of them when I was really young, and I, I really need to go and revisit them, definitely. But it's interesting, even if I don't remember, you know, the plot points, et cetera, et cetera, you know, like a movie like Two of Lygia, for some reason, just the imagery in that movie, even though I don't remember all the details of the plot and, and other aspects of it, some of the themes the images are so iconic to me, you know, uh, there's just something phantasmagoric about that particular movie, but I think it's yeah, true. Yeah, you know, when you think of Tumalajia too, I always think of Price's steampunk glasses. And his, right, right, his it's look. so bizarre, yeah, yeah. Burden Fell's whole look where he's afraid of, you know, sunlight and and also the coffin with the, the window cut out, which I reproduced. I made a movie earlier this year called Parasite Lady, and I commissioned a woodworker guy to duplicate the Tomb of Lygia coffin. That's where my vampire sleeps in. An exact clone of that coffin. Um, I wish I had bought that from him. I let him take it. He sold it to somebody else I should have kept. Um, anyways, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Scorsese said this about Mario Baba, but it same applies to movies like this, is that when you're watching a Baba film, the information comes through the brain, but it misses the intellect entirely, and you end up having a physical kind of reaction to it. And sometimes you can't even articulate why you're reacting to it a certain way. It's hitting you in a subconscious or physical way. And I think uh, the Poe films, I think that it does get trapped there because there is certain accessible intellect ha things happening. But the power of these movies, why they kind of really do stick with you is they are back to, to, to Roger's, you know, subtext idea about the Freudian, especially around these pictures, the Freudian theory. Um, you know, the corridors, for instance, in, in the films he attributed, especially in those first couple movies, to be uh, v vaginas, right? Like when you're walking through doorways and corridors you're actually it's sexual like you're traveling up a you know into a pussy right so <clears throat> i mean even though that's not there in the text you feel it maybe on an instinctual level a kind of eroticism so when you I walk away from, that he was so influenced by freud huge 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 but by the time he gets to the end of it he'd he, done with that it's old hat that's why he shifts such radical gears into the counterculture but um yeah so um i think that's why these movies stick with us is they're images and tones and vibes and emotions and subtext that is lodging itself in our physical being um, that we we remember almost like a dream. So I know we've gone about an hour here and I, I know you have to get going, but um, I wanted to ask you uh, for my listeners, they're always looking for uh, spooky season recommendations. I know we're coming up at the end of uh, the spooky season here, but uh, any horror movies, uh, from past or present that you've been particularly impressed by or would recommend? I mean, I, there's a few that have come out this year that I was actually pleasantly surprised by. You know, I see so much stuff that when people ask me, I can't quantify it. Um, I revisit a lot of movies over and over and over. Uh, I see usually whatever's new. But let me think. Well, on the tip of, of this conversation, uh, Mike Flanagan, the American director who has, you know, been launching these somewhat irreverent uh, remounts of classic uh, horror literature like The Haunting of Hill House, 
um, The Haunting of Bly Manor, which is basically Turn of the Screw. And now The Fall of the House of Usher on Netflix. He's made a little miniseries, eight-episode miniseries. Uh, but it's also a great director. A Midnight Mass, which is his own thing, but it's basically Salem's Lot. Um, and then a great director on his own right of, of features like Absentia and Dr. Sleep, which was, a, I think, more ingenious than people give it credit for. But his Fall of the House of Usher, I just saw it yesterday. All eight episodes, binged it. And um, first three episodes, I was like, eh, fuck this shit. It's obnoxious. I don't like, you know, some of the, a lot of miscast. Uh, it's too on the nose. Every minute they're quoting Poe, Poe, Poe. It's not a straight adaptation of Fall of the House of Usher. It's taking um, the idea of the opioid crisis, mixing it with kind of a succession family dynamic, and then marrying it to this down spiraling doom-laden Poe thing, just choked with Poe references. It's like Poe's greatest hits, remixed. So I was kind of, eh, about it. And then around episode, end of episode three, it all started to go, and I was mesmerized. And now I can't stop thinking about it. So, um, yeah, I would recommend Flanagan, who I think is never made a bad entertainment and is incredibly intelligent and a hell of a writer. His uh, irreverent uh, riff on Poe with, with the fall of the house of Usher. If you can stomach all eight episodes and if you do venture into that world, it's a very mainstream recommend, but sometimes that's fine. Mainstream is fine. When mainstream stuff works, thumbs up. Um, if you do venture into it, uh, have a little patience. Again, it takes a few episodes to really kind of get it stable and find its footing. And then if you do stick with it, I think you'll be rewarded by the end. I got to ask you a, a, a yay or nay on a certain movie uh, because okay. I liked it and I know a lot of people have, have either overlooked it or they're, they're really into it. And I, I feel like every time I bring it up, I'm either going to be getting agreement with someone or they're going to look at me and Sounds be like, like my yeah, kind of movie. I usually I love movies that people either love or despise. Sounds well, like one it, of my movies. But anyways, yeah. So I was going to say, uh, don't call me a hipster for this, but I really liked Talk to Me. OK, I didn't. You didn't, oh! I didn't hate, but I didn't hate it. <clears throat> I didn't hate it. I thought it was Fair incredibly well produced. I very well produced. The lead girl was great. <clears throat> I thought it just kind of right. It was just there for you. <laughs> safe, kind of middling. Um, you know, again, not no fault to the production, the direction. Technically, fantastic. Um, probably a really good movie, but I, I don't think it. It just didn't work for me. I feel like. Um, it was a little bit too. I just been down that road too many times with those cursed object movies that it didn't. Uh, I can feel you on that. I think I was just happy me. because it, for me, it just I was happy with it because it wasn't a Saw movie or a new Halloween movie. So. That's true. And I usually hate those movies, too. But that said, sometimes when you step away from, you know, to me, there's a, lot, a big trend in recent years, which initially you go, yay, great. This is great. Elevated horror, I guess they call it. Most of them have to do with trauma. Someone experiencing some sort of fucking trauma and then whatever the uh, supernatural phenomena they encounter is their way of basically therapy, getting through it. <clears throat> Fine. That's great. Hereditary. Great. The witch. But at fi finally, it's that sort of exhaust its coil. And then you look back and you're looking, you know, I got to say, I hate those Saw movies. I don't like slasher movies by and large. Saw X comes along. My girlfriend drags me to it. I come out of there going, well, fuck, I'm glad I saw that. There's a I certain actually, kind of I gotta say, I really like Saw X, and I keep telling yeah. people it's basically the, Jigsaw meets Death Wish. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just a it's just a revenge matic as Tarantino would say, 
you know, Grand Guignol, completely ridiculous, completely over the top. Um, you know, meat and potatoes. Even even the opening credits, closing credits, it all felt so fucking direct to video. There was a kind of a warmth to that that I I'm like I am glad I'm sitting in an, an expensive fucking multiplex theater, watching the tenth entry in a fucking grimy, disgusting uh, horror film series. And I'm glad it's doing well. And I like them that I'm reacting in a very base way to this. There's no real intellectual, again, there's no real subtext. The social commentary is so fucking pithy. You know, oh, Mexican uh, rip off the can. I mean, you can drive trucks through the plot holes in this thing, but it didn't matter. It was a machine set out to deliver a kind of, uh, you know, basic goods to you. And it did. So I was kind of happy with the unpretentiousness of it, I think. Uh, whereas talk to me, yeah, it was cool. It was really well made. I just, maybe it wasn't in the right frame of mind to embrace it. So that said, I'll probably give it another look, uh, when, when I get a chance and I didn't hate it. Well, Hey, Chris Alexander, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, how can my listeners keep up with the work you're doing? Anything new at full moon, by the way? Uh, I know subspecies five came out. I, I need your help maybe to get Ted on to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Ted's cool. He'll, he'll come on. Um, Subspecies 5 is out on Blu-ray DVD and it's on every streaming platform. Uh, what else do we got going on? My movie, Scream of the Blind Dead, comes out on disc um, in a couple weeks. Um, gosh, there's so much happening right now. Do you guys have made... a new uh, creature feature type movie coming out? Mm. The Beasties or something? I don't know what it's... The Beasties? I mean, you have so many coming out. No, I don't think that's the title, but it... uh, Brooke, I saw Brooks it in, our, in our office. You know, we were mom and pop too, so Brooks in our office just, just made a kind of classic full moon uh, sex and horror, you know, romp called Bring Her to Me, uh, which opens up as of this recording in a couple of days on Friday. Um, Charlie went off and made a, w- a weird AI movie called Amy. Uh, okay. and then they made, they made something else out in, um, in, uh, LA. It was a joy. I'm not sure. I called the bad CGI Gator, which is coming out, you know, typical full moon stuff. Uh, oh, so yeah, full moon you is never, still never doing gets stuff. Boring. In- I'll tell you, I'll tell you, hang out in the full moon world as I do. Um, sometimes you question some of the stuff that's happening, but my God, it is never, ever, ever, ever boring. So full moon is still doing some stuff in LA because I thought Charlie had moved out to, uh, Ohio. Nah, 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 nah. Oh, actually we did. Yeah. Uh, CJ Gator was shot in Cleveland. We, we had a lot of stuff going on in Cleveland. We kind of pulled the plug in a lot of that. Uh, we're still shooting. Bring her to me was shot in LA. Um, but we're shooting all over. I mean, subspecies five was shot in, um, in Serbia. So oh, really, and and all my movies wow. are obviously shot up here. So in Canada, so we're all over the place. Okay. Yeah. Well, Delirium Magazine, everyone should check it out. I'm gonna have to look up the movie that I saw you advertising that I was referring to earlier. I, it wasn't called Beasties. I don't know what it was, but anyways, thank you again Beasties. so much. Beasties, Ouija's? No, that's old. Um, it's full no, moon it's movie. Newer movie from us. I don't know about us. Yeah, some other... they... yeah. Well, I'll figure it out. It's not, it's not. It's not like I didn't make that magazine. I just don't remember what 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 uh, I put in it. <laughs> Anyways, all right. Anyway, thanks so much, Chris. Uh, hope to have you on again soon. For sure, man. And uh, happy Halloween to you and yours. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. By the way, the movie I was thinking of at the end of our conversation was The Primevals. So glad I remembered that, even though it was after Chris and I got off the line with each other. 
In any case, hope you'll keep up with Chris's work. Check out Delirium Magazine. Check out everything that is going on at Full Moon. Charlie Band's little independent studio that could. They keep churning out the horror, fantasy, and sci-fi content that you crave if you're a fan of the fantastic genre. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.